Let's pause for prayer. Lord Jesus, we want to look square in your face this morning and see you on a mission of liberation, that we would be set free. So may we find our liberty in you today as we find out who you are and what you came to do. May we be open to that, God, and I just pray for us to courageously then follow you in steps of obedience in, um, in conjunction with who you are. So we give you this time. God, it's yours now. Speak. And we ask that we will be avid listeners. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's dismiss our children to their uh, learning. Well, again, good morning, everyone. I'm really glad that you're here. Here we are. We're ramping up to Easter. We're also winding down a series right before Easter on the real Jesus. And um, just to review, for those of you who are kind of wondering what, what sort of ground we've covered in the series, it's been pretty critical. We've been building each week. First week, we asked, who is Jesus? And we found that from his own lips, in his own self-understanding, that he believed himself to be the fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, which is kind of stunning, <coughs> excuse me, stunning and startling and, and kind of uh, earth-shattering when you think about a, an actual human man thinking of himself the way Jesus thought of himself. So then the next week we realized that people try to get around that answer because that's just not comfortable for people. So we realized that modern scholarship has tried to say, wait, maybe, maybe we can recover a historical Jesus, which is always less than the Christ of faith, through looking at other historical documents that talk about Jesus. But we found out that these other so-called secret gospels are from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. They're far, far later and far less reliable than the material that you have about Jesus that we've always had right there in your New Testament. So that was what we talked about last week. So we've kind of written off this idea that Jesus could be passed off as mere legend. That we have for us, uh, as sort of a, an uncontrovertible fact, a man in the middle of the first century who claims a divine self-understanding for himself. Now, what remains is, what did he come to do? So here we have this guy, and who can't be passed off as, as a crazy man because everyone loves him and respects him, can't be passed off as a, uh, a liar because of his high moral character. He, what, what then did he come to do? So um, what's interesting about Jesus' purpose is that whatever he thought his purpose was, the crowd certainly had a purpose for him. And they started to manifest this from almost the beginning of the time that he began to preach. They wanted to make him a king. From the time that he started healing people and traveling from town to town, the crowds definitely wanted a political leader. They wanted a military political deliverer. That was their purpose for him. And there was a moment when it looked like they would get what they wanted. And the moment was what we're celebrating today. Traditionally, this is when churches celebrate Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus strode into Jerusalem like a king riding on a donkey. We call it the triumphal entry. Let me read for you how Matthew records it. It's recorded in all four Gospels in the New Testament, but here's Matthew's account. Matthew 21, verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their coats on them for Jesus to sit on. Most of the people spread their coats on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of him and that followed him was shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, Matthew records, the whole city was in an uproar. People were asking, who is this? The crowd answered, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Okay, so a little bit of context here. The delirious crowd that is answering the question, who is this, is the crowd that has come with Jesus down from Galilee where he lived, where his hometown was, and where he did most of his ministry. Now you may ask, what on earth 
is a, is, a, is a mob like that traveling with Jesus the hundred or so miles on foot down to Jerusalem? The answer is that they were already on their way. They were already coming. Now, why were they already going to Jerusalem? Because of the Passover. It's the Passover. So every able-bodied Jewish man, woman, and child is coming down to Jerusalem for the great festival. But this year, the northerners who are making the trek are coming like fanboys in the wake of their hero, Jesus. And what has added to the frenzy in this moment is that just a couple days before this, Jesus has done probably one of his greatest miracles where he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And that happened in Bethany just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. So now the word got out about that and the, the place has gone nuts. The, the crowds are literally in a delirious uh, mode of joy. So with an entourage of maybe thousands of people, plus, of course, his core disciples, Jesus approaches Jerusalem, and it's a moment of wild praise. People from Galilee, these are the ones who are traveling with him. Who, they've seen what he can do. So they're the ones who are kind of going nuts. They're the ones. They're laying down their coats and leafy branches, palm fronds into his path, giving a king's welcome to Jesus into the capital city. Right? And that's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Jesus comes into the city of God like a king. The thing was, friends, this wasn't the first time that they wanted to make him king. I mean, we have it recorded for us in John chapter 6 and a couple other places that people are really wanting to elevate him. They're basically just ready to usher him into the White House. Right? So one time by force. I mean, can you do that? Can you make a guy the president by force? I'm not sure. Maybe we could do that in our cultural context. But... Um, the, 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 more, the more fame that he got, the more people wanted to turn him into some kind of political savior. Now, why does he not accept this? Why has he resisted it up to this moment? Why has he resisted? If he's the son of God, hello, fix the world. Fix the world, God. I mean, there's plenty of problems, and the higher you're elevated in political stature, the more you can fix, ostensibly, right? So why not? There's only one reason, friends, and that's what we're going to talk about today. One reason, and that is simply his, it was not his purpose. That was not what he came to do. And that's also then why he does so many other things that to us seem so counterintuitive given his divine self-understanding. Like some of you have read the Bible and you've had all these perplexing questions. If Jesus is who he said he was, then why does he do business the way he does it? For example, why did he only minister for three years total? Grand total, 36-month career. He's a 33-year-old man when he was executed. I mean, if he's truly the son of God, I mean, he's got, he's got a lot more time than three years as a, as a functional adult to work and minister and teach and lead and fix stuff. Three years, that's it. Why did he never travel to the real cosmopolitan centers of his day, like Rome, for example? Why? Why stick around in Judea? He, he basically ran away when people wanted to make him king a couple of years earlier in his ministry after he fed the 5,000 everyone said, who better to rule us than a guy who can manifest bread? And that guy should rule. Why did he run away from that? Why was he content ministering in relative obscurity in the rural northern part of the country instead of in the big city? Why did he only travel to Jerusalem three or four times as far as we can tell total in his ministry? Why did he tell noisy demons to shut up and be quiet about his true identity? Why did he tell people that he healed to not blab it around of who he was and what he had done for them? Why did he do that? 
Why was he transfigured? You guys remember this. If you've read the story, you remember it. It's this moment when, when who he is, his, this divine self-understanding is physically manifested. And he's transfigured, brilliant white, but only in front of three disciples. Why not 12? Why not 100? Why not 1,000? Why not in front of the world? And for that matter, why, when he's raised from the dead, only appear to, yes, I mean, it's hundreds of people, but it's still just a few hundred people. Why not to Pilate? Not, why not to Caesar? Why not to thousands? These are all great questions. But friends, they all have one answer. One answer. That was not his purpose. None of that was his purpose. He ministered just long enough to basically train up a cache of disciples who would carry the message on, but other than that, he had one goal, one purpose. And political fame and power was not it. But you say, oh, with the triumphal entry, Rick, that seems like that's way out of pattern, because there he is, being essentially coronated as the king of Israel. Yes, you're right, that is totally out of pattern. In this one moment, now he accepts public praise. They loudly say, king of Israel, son of David, which was, you know, them's fighting words. That's, that's a revolution right there. And he accepts that. He allows that. In fact, when the religious leaders say, Rabbi, look at what the children are saying about you. Tell them to shut up. He says, well, I could tell them to shut up, but then the stones would take over. That's what he says. So this is a moment where he receives it. He receives all this adulation and praise. Why this one time on the day of the triumphal entry? The answer again is, because the time for his true purpose had finally arrived. And it's okay at this moment that he's outed as the son of God. Because the die has been cast. And the time has come for his purpose to be fulfilled. See, he deflected praise and attention before this. Not because he wasn't worthy of it. Not because um, he wasn't worthy of the honors that people wanted to bestow on him. No, he deflected them because if he had entertained them earlier in his career, he would have been derailed from his exclusive mission, which he was focused on like a laser beam. And if you read the Gospels, you know. He's just looking ahead, and he's marching like he's marching for three years inexorably towards his purpose. So what was it? What was his purpose? When Jesus finally, he spells it out, when he says, this is why I came. The end of those sentences is never to be really famous, to wield political power, to be the world's greatest teacher, to eliminate all poverty or injustice, to fix broken social structures. He doesn't ever say to redraw geopolitical lines to fix historical um, uh, grudges. He doesn't ever say, I've come to overthrow all tyrants and to establish democracy on the earth. Nope, never says that. Instead, when he comes and spells it out in plain English, this is why I came. Here's what he says. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man has come. Why? To seek and to save the lost. And then again, if we need more clarity, he says, Matthew chapter 28, or 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And finally, just a few days after this triumphal entry, when Jesus is sitting down with his 12 disciples and they're enjoying a meal together, the Passover meal, and this is right before his execution, he inaugurates what we just celebrated in worship this morning, communion. And he says to them at the Last Supper, Mark chapter 14, now verse 23, and he took the cup, spoke a prayer, and said to them, this is my blood, the blood of the promise, and it is poured out for many people. 
So in a word, AC3, despite what your expectations are for what the Son of God should do when he shows up on planet Earth, Jesus came to die. That's it. It's a word. Jesus came to die. The apostles would later say, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Now, if you're a Jew, you understand. Because the Passover is that moment when they had sacrificed the lamb and the blood of the lamb was spread over the doorposts and God's judgment passed over them. And they were graciously spared. They were one. They were saved by the grace of the Passover lamb. So when they call Jesus the Passover lamb, basically they're saying he is that to which the 2,000 years of the entire sacrificial system has been pointing to him, the Passover lamb. So that day, AC3, when he strides into Jerusalem on a humble donkey with the people madly cheering, it was only then that he could accept everyone's adulation. Now it was okay. Now it's all right for them, for everybody to know. Now he can accept the K word, which is the king. Now he can be called king, and it's safe and okay. Why? Because the people's misunderstandings of what he really came to do could no longer get in the way of what he came to do. At that moment, when he's striding into Jerusalem, right before the Passover, on the third year of his ministry, the die was cast. The time for his sacrifice was at hand. The time he had come to die. And that's what he came for. Now, how strange it must have seemed for the crowds who wanted him to live, who wanted him to rule, who wanted him to fix stuff. How strange for those people who were laying down the palm fronds and the coats down on the way, how strange for them when he walked into Jerusalem and the first thing he did was not go to the, the governor's house, not go to the courts to kick out the justices and the judges who were perverting God's ways. He didn't even go to the king's palace. No, where's the, where's the first place he went when he entered into the city of God? First place he went to was the temple. He went to the temple to cleanse it, to his, as he called it, my father's house. Now, that doesn't surprise you if you know why he came. Because he didn't come to inhabit the king's palace. He didn't come to inhabit the governor's mansion. He came to be a spiritual king of a special and peculiar people of many, many countries. And that tells you, friends, what he was all about. That he goes to the spiritual heart of, of Jerusalem and not to the, the civic heart or the political heart of the city. After he kicks over the money-changing tables and he cleanses the, the temple, he, he really, you know, the die is really cast now. Now it's inexorable. Now he must die. And so it will only be a couple more days before he's arrested. And if you need more proof that Jesus' purpose was not a temporal kingdom, that he had no design on political power, here's what he says at his trial before Pontius Pilate, who has the power to spare his life. He says, John chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origin here. Now, that doesn't mean that people in Jesus' name and following Jesus won't have deep impact on the world. It's not such an ethereal kingdom that Jesus has come to be a king of that it doesn't have impact here and now in the real world that you inhabit and then I inhabit because Jesus' followers in the last 2,000 years have invented hospitals, abolished slavery twice, and we're working on a third time. The sex slave trade is another thing. There's more sex slaves in the world today, 35 million they say, thereabouts. More slaves today than there were in the time of Jesus. 
And if the church has its way, we'll abolish slavery for the third time in the history of the world. They fed the poor. They invented the orphanage. The church invented the orphanage. People in the name of Jesus have taken up positions as heads of state. People have, in the name of Jesus have started companies that have unleashed huge amounts of capital into the world for the purposes of God in this world. Christians have explored the world and they have been its first and some of its best scientists. Christians have clothed the naked and visited the poor and defended the naked. This is what Christians have done in the real world in the name of Jesus. So Jesus' spiritual kingdom and his kingship has all sorts of manifestations in the kingdom of the world. But friends, understand something. That doesn't change the fact that he never came to be the king of a country. He came to be the king of hearts. That's it. Jesus came to be the king of hearts. He came to be the king of your heart. He did not come to be the king of your country. He came to be the king of your heart. For remember his purpose. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. A ransom payment for many. Now, how many of you read the Gospels and you've been just totally perplexed by the imbalance in the material that's covered there? If you've read them stem to stern, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you've realized that though they cover three years of his life, as if that weren't weird enough, that only three years of the most magnificent life that's ever been lived, but we're only going to cover three years of it, this material in the Gospels, a clear 33% of that material doesn't cover the last year of his life, covers the last week of his life. Seven days. And of that 33%, another 50% of that covers just 12 hours. 12 hours of his trial, his torture, and his execution. Have you ever been perplexed by the imbalance of the Gospels? What's going on here? Those of you who want to elevate Jesus into maybe some kind of great moral teacher and like that's his main contribution to the world, you are staring in the face of a different emphasis that the apostles want you to understand in Jesus' life. Was he a great moral teacher? Yes, he was. But everything he said, morally speaking, had already been said by who? By Moses. So Jesus said, I, I didn't come to judge you, give you brand new laws. Moses already did that. Moses already did that. I came to save. I came to save. So what's going on in this imbalance? What it's showing you again, friends, is the purpose. The purpose of Jesus is that he came to die. This means it's all about the cross. His true purpose culminates there in the cross. You saw it earlier in our video that we showed you of some clips from the Son of God movie. And also we saw the same thing in the Passion movie much, much earlier, about 10 years ago. There was a moment when I think the actors and the directors made a really great artistic choice. When they show the actor playing Jesus after his torture, and he's literally been made hamburger by the Roman cat of nine tails, which is what they called their special whip, which had nine leather prongs with little bits of bone or metal on the end to basically be the most torturous kind of whipping, scourging that you could possibly endure. And at the end of that whipping, they have the actor falling down, almost dead, and then Jesus looks at the cross that he's going to carry up to Golgotha. And in both movies, I just love this choice. They have Jesus embrace the cross, his eyes close, and a smile breaks across his face. 
It's a great choice. Why? Because it embodies this. He came for that cross, friends. He came for that cross and for no other purpose than to embrace it. And physically, in those artistic renditions, he does physically, literally embrace it. And he smiles as if to say, finally, you are here. This is my calling. This is what I came to do. And on the cross, he would utter these words, it is finished. What's finished? His purpose. What he came to do. And what did he come to do? I mean, what did that accomplish? Finally, the greatest life the world has ever seen and it's extinguished in 12 hours? What did that do exactly? Well, there's a hint of it in that phrase, the Passover lamb, but I'll let Paul the Apostle explain it in detail in his letter to the Romans, chapter 3, verse 24. He says, all need to be made right with God by his grace, which is a free gift. They need to be made free from sin through Jesus Christ. So he's focusing right then and there also on the cross, on the death of Jesus. And then next verse, God sent him to die in our place to take away our sins. We receive forgiveness through faith in the blood of Jesus' death. So the whole church is kind of focused on this. From the get-go, they're focused on this. They're not saying, what a cool little country sage, walking from village to village telling us really cool stuff. No, they're focused in on the end game. And the end game, AC3, that was that he should give his life as a ransom payment. And you should understand it as a ransom payment. There is a substitute that's going. We understand what ransom means, right? Someone kidnaps a kid and he says, I'll, I'll give him back for $30 million. You pony up $30 million, the child gets back. And we are held ransom. The Bible is really clear about this, friends. We're held ransom by sin and rebellion. And it's like we've erected a great wall between us and God. And what Jesus does by dying on the cross, you say, what does that accomplish? It smashes a hole through that wall. And so provides the ransom payment and the exchange can now be made. So you say, that's it, that's awesome. We're, we're all in the clear then. We're all in the clear. Well, no, not exactly. Yes, the way has been made, but now you've got to go through. And the Bible's really clear about that. The, the, the death had to happen to make a way. The way's been made. It's been paved in his blood. It's, it's done. It's finished. But you've got to walk through. You, you, you've got to personally appropriate that, day, that payment for your own situation. How? By faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what does that look like? Does that mean checking off a bunch of, I, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it, doctrines, like a list of, of um, teachings that you say, yeah, I agree. Or is it something more robust than that? It is. And Jesus gave us a beautiful picture of it. I'm going to tell it to you in a story that he told. I'm going to put a modern gloss on it, but you can find it for yourselves in Luke chapter 18. This is what faith looks like. This is how you access ransom payment for your own situation. Jesus told two men who went to church one day, and they prayed. One was a real spiritual big shot. Uh, he had uh, a Bible education. He knew the Bible real, real well. He knew the ropes. He knew the spiritual rules. He looked good with his peers. He was very confident. He was well-respected in the community. He was a good citizen. He was a law-abiding dude. He was impeccable. He had wonderful political views. Okay, that's one guy. The second guy was not like that. Not well-respected. 
known to have pulled off a few fast ones in his time, known to be a bit of a shady dealer in his professional life, used car lot kind of guy. My apologies to any of you who sell used cars for a living, by the way. We're just, we're just going with the caricature, right? I'm sure you're very honest. But the, the caricature of the used car lot kind of guy, that was this guy, known to be corrupt, had taken advantage of people a time or two. That was certain, and he knew it. During the service, the really religious guy had an opportunity to pray, and so he didn't miss a chance to make a good impression. And so he stood up and prayed, Oh God, I thank you that I am not like a sinner like others, like this used car salesman over here. I thank you that I am far from the guilt of others, especially like those who are corrupt and rebellious. I never cheat. I don't commit adultery. I fast twice a week, and I give a lot of my money away. Amen. Everyone was duly impressed, but the used car salesman guy, he wasn't really listening. He was off in a corner of the sanctuary. His head was down. His eyes were pointed towards his shoes because he didn't feel worthy enough to lift them up as he prayed. Instead, there were tears streaming down his face as his heart burned inside his chest and a fist was clenched against his heart. And he prayed a very different kind of prayer. He whispered, Oh God, be merciful to me. I need grace. I don't deserve forgiveness, but I'm asking for it. I have nothing to bring you. I have no gift. I have no track record of good deeds. I'm just full of need, God. I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. I've rebelled against you. I've strayed far from you. Have mercy on me. Amen. End of story. Then Jesus turns to the crowd, and as he often did, he asked them for an interpretation by asking them a question. Which of these two guys goes home not guilty? Which of these two guys goes home righteous? Which of these two guys goes home with the judge having brought the gavel down and said, not guilty, innocent? Which of these two guys? And the answer is obvious. It's the second guy. Because the second guy, friends, is the one who demonstrates what saving faith looks like. That's what it looks like. You know what that means? That means the first guy, good person, he goes home as lost as he came. You understand? The good guy goes home as lost as he came. Jesus was not afraid to call good people lost. So, Friends, um, you go with that one story, you, you see what saving faith looks like. It looks like penitence. It looks like humility. It looks like repentance. It looks like confession. It looks like transparency before God. It looks like the end of game playing. That's what saving faith looks like. And you see then how, how one goes through the pathway that Jesus' death opened up into life. You can see how, how you get there. You can also see how to not get there. You can see how to get it, and you can see how to miss it. Jesus was really clear about it. How, how one gets included and how one gets excluded. And it boils down to a little couplet that you could say describe every interaction that Jesus ever had with anybody on the pages of the Bible. It goes like this. It was uh, law to the proud, grace to the humble. That was his whole MO when it came to people. And people just kind of broke down to one side of that equation or another. Remember the guy in our drama stood here? He represented the rich young ruler. You can read about him also, by the way. Excuse me. 
in Luke chapter 18, based on a real interaction that Jesus had with a guy about heaven. Now, here's a rich guy. He's, a, he's a, again, another well-looking, well-respected dude in the community, and he's very concerned about eternal life. That's the first thing out of his mouth. Master, how may I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what is, what is, what's written? He asked this good law-abiding Jew what Moses had said about how one acquires life. And um, so he goes to Moses and he goes immediately to the law. And he says, well, there's all the commandments. And so, like, obey your father and mother and, uh, and don't murder anybody and don't commit adultery and don't steal. And all these I have done since I was a child. Now, I don't know how you feel about your own moral performance. but I don't think I could say that. I mean, all these I've done since I was a child. What kind of child was he? I, I mean, I've, I've had childses in my home. I, I've been a, and I've been a childses, and I, they, since they was a child? Are you kidding me? I, I just feel like he's maybe kidding himself here. So Jesus, rather than point that out and say, seriously? Because that's what I want to say. Seriously, dude? Instead, what Jesus says, oh, that's awesome, that's awesome, that's awesome. One thing you lack. One thing you lack. Go sell everything, and then come and be my follower. Now, this is a fascinating thing, because you've got to ask yourself the question, is Jesus laying down some radical new view of salvation that you and I can only attain eternal life by embracing voluntary poverty? Is that what he's saying? We can say no to that question with some real authority, because this is the one and only time that Jesus ever asked anyone to sell out as a precondition to follow him. So why this particular time, with this particular man, does Jesus ask him to cash out for heaven? Here's why. Because when Jesus says, just obey the commandments to be perfect, he meant all the commandments. And did you notice there was a commandment that the dude didn't mention? Yeah, it was the first commandment, the most important one, the one from which all the other ones flowed, a one that he would have memorized as a Jewish a child. And I'll just repeat it for you just in case you don't know which commandment I'm referring to. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, Moses says, or God says through Moses, you shall have no other gods before me. And what Jesus was crystal clear on in that moment was this man's money had become his God. And it was a God that had taken the place of the one true God, the creator God, the one who loved him and cared for him and wanted to be in relationship with him. His material affluence had become his source of security. That's what it means when it said it had become his God. He trusted in it. He worshipped it. He organized his life around the attainment of it. He cherished it near to his heart like an illicit lover. And so Jesus knew that just giving him one task was going to expose the fact that the man was a lawbreaker. Rather than say, hey dude, you're a lawbreaker like everybody else. Instead he just says, hey, why don't you just sell everything and come and follow me? And he goes away and weeps bitter tears because the Bible says his wealth was so great couldn't do it which means jesus was dead on he had pointed out exactly what the man's competing god was was he trying to shame the guy no he was trying to show the guy his desperate need for grace so it was law to the proud to humble him law to the proud but the man was unwilling to let go of his god his own goodness his own self-sufficiency and self-containment now as i'm saying that a lot of you are saying well phew that's not me, you know, I'm not, I'm not rich, so that can't be my problem. But understand something, again, through Jesus, the law is spiritual. That's what he taught us, right? So the law is spiritual. So he showed that in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And so it constantly pushes a question on us. What about the heart? You're a good person. That's awesome. You're a fine, upstanding citizen. I believe it about you. You're a tax-paying, law-abiding person. Awesome. But can you say that you are without sin in the heart? Jesus would say, Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this is what defiles a man. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. Yeah, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that, that dude. He said this about you. He said, what's coming out is what's in here. So even if you've kept from sleeping in the wrong beds and you've you know, meticulously you know, obeyed externally some of the great commandments of God, awesome, good for you, I'm really glad you're not a criminal. But that doesn't mean you're faultless. Because Jesus said, from the heart, the mouth speaks. That's just what Jesus did, friends, over and over again. He ruthlessly submarined your right to self-righteousness. And so if you were in that posture, he just put law in your face. Here, try some law on for size. See how that works. But then there was a whole other group of people, right? There was a whole other set of people that he met and interacted with, a group that had because of maybe their station in life or because of their circumstances or because of their gender even, because their failures were already broken and felt themselves to be second-class citizens. They They were broken of their pride. To the fallen, to those devastated by guilt, to those covered in shame, to the helpless, to the bankrupt, to those people, grace to the humble. It wasn't law in their face. To those people, Jesus was a friend. To those people, Jesus was life. He was wholeness. So we read, to the woman caught in adultery, he said, I will not condemn you, go and sin no more. To a woman who had four husbands, just was really into the serial monogamy thing, and was currently living with a fifth, to that woman he said, I am the living water that your soul is hungering for. Come to me and you will be satisfied. To another woman with a bad reputation who poured expensive oil on his feet, he said, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. Go woman, your sins are forgiven. To the rich, another rich man, so this is irrespective of your wealth, to a rich man who had cheated his way to money, he said, today salvation has come to this house. To a man who was born blind, he said, this is not punishment for his parents' sin, but so that the work of God could be displayed in his life. See, AC3, he had a totally different posture depending on your posture. A lot of the proud, grace to the humble. Jesus offered grace to those who came to him with nothing but faith. Like that guy in the church. To those people, to the humble, to those who came with only just a trusting hope that somehow this God-man, in him they would find a love that would stoop and rescue and save them from from themselves. To them he was life and breath and hope. And those people who threw off every vestige of hope except Jesus, those people (laughs) were embraced. And they were not disappointed. I haven't come for, well, the well, he says. I haven't come for the well. I've come for the sick. I have come to call sinners to repentance. And so they did come to him, AC3. They came by the thousands for healing, for forgiveness of sins, for hope, for heaven. They came. And in him they found a love with their name written right on it. So how do you come today? I just want to ask you that. I mean, how do you come today? Could you be honest with yourself? Do you come proud or do you come humble? 
C.S. Lewis said, I know of only one way to uh, be broken of conceit, and that is to begin by admitting that you're conceited. If you don't think you're conceited, he said, you are very conceited indeed. So friends, how will you line up on this? Could you say, honestly, I think I'm pretty well put together on this. I think I'm doing fine. I'm confident in myself. I'm in charge of my life. I'm a good person. I stand, I, stand, I think, pretty, pretty well. I, 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 I measure up pretty good before a God. Well, let me just say this. My healthy friend, you might be too healthy for Dr. Jesus to go to work on you. Because he didn't come for you. He came for the sick. But are you sick today? I mean, you would judge yourself to be spiritually, morally, socially, emotionally. You'd say, I'm broken. And you'd admit it before God. You'd say, I'm broken. Life has humbled me. Have you been one? Are you one of those kinds of people who has found that you can't really break God's laws? Like you can break them, but then when you break them, you find that they break you back. And that you got broken when you broke God's laws? Are you the kind of person who maybe would honestly say, I sowed bad seed and I've reaped a bitter harvest? Are you one of those kinds of people who could just say honestly, you know, I found that I can't even measure up to my own standard, let alone God's holy, perfect standard? Well, if so, then friends, you find yourself in the company of the humble and those who with saving faith are eligible candidates for eternal life. Jesus opened up a way for you. The way was open for you through the wall of our own rebellion and stiff-necked pride. The way was open for you if you will humble yourself and come on through the low-hanging door of the cross. If so, then you can be this person, and maybe today would be your day. Like, this could just be your day when you say, yeah, you know, that's me. I've investigated this thing, and, you know, it really doesn't look reasonable any longer that I can say that Jesus was just some legend that we blew up over the centuries. We can't, I can't do that anymore. It's not intellectually honest. Here was a guy, mid-first century, who claimed to be one with God. And then he blew off all aspirations for political power, and he didn't say, I've come to be your best moral teacher, and I'm going to show you God. He said, I am God. And then he said, here's what I've come to do. I've come to die, to make a way. And then you look at his interactions with people and he shows you the people that he's welcoming through. Come on through the door of grace. All you who are humble, all you who are broken, everyone who in trusting, uh, penitent, childlike faith will just throw yourself on me with reckless abandon. Come on in. Come on in. Maybe today's your day. I mean, are you running out of reasons to resist? Because if you are, today could be the day you express saving faith. A faith that just says, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I can tell you what Jesus will say to you based on what he said to other people. When he was here on earth, he'd say, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. And the proud people and the super religious people will look at it and say, only God can do that. To which you say, exactly. So now let's pray. I want us to come to this moment of prayer and whatever posture you find gets you in that space where you can just focus right now on God. Close your eyes if you need to. Maybe bow your head and just in a humble way 
take the position of that, that broken tax collector. And you could maybe, even if you want to, you could put your hand on your chest and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And maybe this would be your first prayer of faith. Some of you in this room, this would be it. It might be the first time in your life that you truly before Jesus say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in this moment, he will pour in his love and forgiveness because that's what he promised to do because the cross made a way. It unleashed unlimited capital to pay your debt. And I don't care how big your debt is, friend. Maybe you think your debt's too big. It's not too big because Jesus was who he said he was. If he is God in human flesh, he is infinite and therefore his debt payment is infinite. It can cover any debt, including yours. So maybe you're ready. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a really long time and you want to renew this. And so you don't need to get rebaptized. You don't need to get resaved. But you once again take the position of the humble, penitent thief and you say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And maybe if this is the first time, you could pray a prayer and it would go something like this. And I'll just pray it in my own, with my own words. You'd pray it in your own heart with your own words. Something like this. Lord Jesus, I do now believe that you are who you said you are. And I can't look into your eyes anymore and hold on to my pride. I just can't. And so I'm ready to say who I am before you. I am broken and I'm sick. I am in need of mercy. And if I was to stand before you on judgment day with my own merits, I would be found wanting. So I need someone to step in on my behalf. I need you to step in on my behalf. That your righteousness, your perfection, your goodness would replace the boatload of rebellion I've brought to you. And I take your innocence, Lord. You take my sin. You take my sin and you take my life. It's yours. You purchased it on the cross. And there's nothing, there's no response that's better than this. God, right now, I give you everything. Now take up my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit that I may walk a walk of love that models you until you come again. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.